The viewpoints expressed on Night Fright are not necessarily those of the host, the staff, the sponsors, or the affiliate stations. Tonight's program may contain graphic themes or images. Viewer discretion is advised. There is a time for question. There is a time for answers. There is a time to challenge. There is a time to speculate. There is a time for change. There is a time for truth. The time is now. Showtime. Welcome to the show. I'm Brent Holland. Welcome, everybody, to Night Fright. Now, there's just something very, very uneasy in the air tonight. It's one of those nights, folks, when it's best to stay in the safety of your home near a fire. Get the coffee going. Get the tea going. Get a beverage of your choice going. Settle in your most comfy chair. Pull up the comforter way up. Settle back and kick your feet up. Our guest tonight, Jenny Ashford, is a writer, graphic designer, and has a horror blog called Goddess of Hellfire that contains short stories and articles and her reviews and opinions on horror films and books. Now, tonight, folks, we're going to be looking at two nonfiction books that she's put together. One is called The Rochdale Poltergeist, the other, The Mammoth Mountain Poltergeist. Both are true stories. They're both of paranormal activity, and they're going to be the focus of our show here tonight. Now, in a word, folks, both are terrifying, so settle in. The book, for example, The Rochdale Poltergeist, documents the Gardner family, just every Joe Average family who is haunted by, are you ready for this? Flying objects? Disembodied voices, no less. Phantom smells and sounds. But strangest of all, there's copious falls of water seemingly coming from nowhere. It's as though it was raining in the house all the time. Jenny Ashford's second book is called The Mammoth Mountain Poltergeist. That's where we're going to start. Also a true story. In December of 1982, when Tom Ross was only 13 years old, he took a week's vacation to Mammoth Lakes in California with his aunt, uncle, and cousin. Almost from the moment they arrived at their condo, they experienced a near-constant barrage of bizarre phenomena that escalated over their stay. It seemed to follow them even after they left. Items moved around by themselves. Shades flew open when no one was near them. Bloody tissue appeared out of nowhere. Words appeared on windows in empty rooms, and a blue haze seemed to hover near the ceiling. A door chain was broken from the inside by what appeared to be, get ready for this, a clawed hand. And disembodied voices once again emerged 
from the shadows. 32 years later, the four witnesses decided to gather together in safety to tell their story. It's my great pleasure. All the way from Orlando, Florida, Jenny Ashford is here joining us tonight to tell us about these two books of Poltergeist. Thanks so much for joining us, Jenny. Thank you very much for having me. You're very welcome, my friend. Okay, let's jump in right away, shall we? Let's okay. jump in and start off with the Mammoth Mountain Poltergeist. How did this story come across your desk? Um, basically, when it ended up happening, I had been writing horror for about 10 years, horror fiction. And um, I started dating Tom Ross. And uh, we had been dating for probably about a year and a half. Okay. And he, um, you know, he's like, oh, you write horror and stuff like that. He's like, well... I had something really hor horrifying happen to me when I was 13 years old. So he told me the story, and I'm kind of skeptical of paranormal in general, and I was like, I, I, it wasn't that I disbelieved it. It was just that, oh, well, you know, maybe you guys were just seeing things, or, you know, I just... But the more, like, I talked to him about it, and I talked to his aunt and uncle and his cousin a little bit, and they basically, you know, they told me the whole story. They told me exactly what happened. And really, if it happened the way they said, which I believe it did, I don't, I mean, there's no way it could have been mistaken for anything else. So I found the story so interesting that I asked if, you know, I asked all of them, I said, would you mind if I wrote a book about it? And they said, sure. So that's okay. how that came about. Okay. Now, what was the epiphany for you? What was the scariest part that said, oh, my God, I got to get this onto paper somehow? It was kind of just, it, it was one of the few cases that I had heard of where the phenomena was, one, it was so frequent. I mean, they, mm -hmm. they were only at the Mammoth Mountain um, location for probably five or six days and then a few days um, at the aunt's house, it followed them. But it, it was just frequent activity and it was so in your face. It was like large objects like moving in rooms when there was no one in there, like a huge bunk bed that was like 300 pounds, wow. like moved up against the door, like in a few seconds, like with no sound or anything. And, you know, things like would disappear from one place and appear in another place, like in a second. And they all saw it. It was, it just, they said it just happened right in front of your face. Like it was unbelievable. And so I think really that was the thing that, that and the claw, I think the claw thing was the scariest. And that was what, that was what kind of made me want to write about it because that was that just creeped me out but but um by the way jenny just over your shoulder from the shadows <laughs> no yeah. i'm kidding <laughs> <laughs> yeah oh boy yeah. <laughs> oh my yeah anything to do with a claw right now with this was this family had they ever experienced anything like this prior to going to this condo no that was what was so unusual and they had never been to this condo before mm. Um, they were just going, the condo was actually owned by an oil company um, that Tom's mother worked for. And she had been offered to stay there uh, over the Christmas holiday and she couldn't go. So she said to her sister, Tom's aunt, hey, do you guys want to go stay up there for a week and go skiing and all this other stuff? So they, they were like, sure. So they went and stayed up there. And and it just it seemed to start like before they even got there. Oh. And they said nothing like that had ever happened to them before so they don't know why was there a feeling that something ominous was going to happen before they departed um tom actually felt when they were driving up to the location um they had a 
they had a Jeep Cherokee or a Jeep Wagoneer, I think it was. And they were driving up, and Tom said, you know, I was 13 years old. He's like, I had just seen The Shining, you know, the year before or whatever. And he's like, and it looked just like that, like driving up through the mountains, like with snowy mountains on either side and this lonely road. Up. Yeah, so he's like, so I was thinking about that. Mm. And he said, so I just had this really weird kind of feeling of dread, like going up there, like I was going to this place, and I didn't know where it was, and I'd never been there. And on the way up there, like almost probably about a half hour before they got to the condo, the uh, the hood on the Jeep Wagoneer just flew up all by itself while they were driving. And um, so, of course, you know, they were on a mountain road with like a big steep drops on the sides and stuff like that. So they had to stop and pull over. And, and uh, Tom's Uncle Red got out of the car and, you know, put the hood down. And they said, well, what, is it broken or the latch broken? He's like, no, there's nothing wrong with it. That's why I can't figure it just kind of flew up all by itself. And and that was like the first thing that was and that was like a half hour before they even got there you see if it was me right folks i would have bolted right there that would have been it i would have just left the truck and started walking <laughs> yeah, back down the hill <laughs> was tom the most affected by all of this was he's the one that received the brunt of the poltergeist activity uh, it probably was. I mean, I think, you know, the whole family, they, they didn't really go out and get much skiing. They were kind of in, you know, in the condo, just freaking out and trying to figure out what was going on the whole time. Um, he was definitely the focus of the activity. His cousin was there, too, and his cousin was also 13. Mm -hmm. But um, his cousin was uh, deaf and also slightly autistic, and he didn't really, he also, uh, they think he had, like, altitude sickness. He was real lethargic and... You know, so he wasn't really that bothered, I guess. That was kind of the weird thing about it was that the cousin was just not even really caring about the poltergeist. He was like, yeah, whatever, I'm just going to sleep. But um, Tom definitely seemed to be, honestly, not even the focus, but I think he was kind of the one that was almost like causing it to happen, you know. Okay, why do you say that? Why do you say he was? Because I've heard this before where... Uh, mostly young females, actually, in puberty, yeah. or just starting puberty, attract poltergeists or create them. Yeah. Is this the I same thing with males? Yeah, I definitely think that was the case here because, I mean, at the age he was at and the type of personality he is and was more so at the time. I mean, he was kind of a real high-strung kid, but he had been in military school, so he had to, like, tamp down a lot of his emotions and... Um, you know, there had been a lot of uh, breakups going on in his family. His parents had divorced, and, you know, there was a lot of that kind of stuff going on. And um, so I definitely think that played a role in, uh, in causing it. And I also should add that um, the, more we talk, the more we talked about the books recently, uh, about, probably about six months ago, the activity started again at our house. So I definitely, not, not to the extent that it was. Can you tell us what happened? Um, actually. He's not going he's, through puberty any, anymore, obviously. No, that's what's yeah. so weird. And, and he's not even going through any particular stress or anything like that. But hmm. we think maybe it's just because since we had been talking about the book so much and talking about the story and I had been bugging, I was like, I wanted to see it. Because I've not, I had never seen anything paranormal, and I was, like, kind of jealous that it's, you know, even though I know it would be scary, and I, but I was kind of like, I just, you know, I want to see it. And he's like, I know, I wish you could have seen it. So 
it probably started, maybe it wasn't even six months ago. It was probably just maybe three or four months ago. And the first thing I saw was um, we had two friends over and, his, and Tom's mother was here also. And we were all sitting in the living room and we were trying to watch a movie on our direct TV. And um, we were, you know, we were trying to get the pay-per-view and it wouldn't start. And we were getting annoyed and frustrated. So, you know, one of us got on the phone to customer service and we were just sitting around going, man, we really wish the TV, the movie would start. And then all of a sudden the direct TV remote control, which had been on the coffee table, like in the middle of the coffee table, it just flew off the coffee table, went about three feet. And then it landed on the carpet, but it sounded like a brick hitting the carpet. And the remote control is just plastic, yeah. you know, it only, you know, it weighs a couple ounces maybe. And it usually clicks and bounces when it hits the floor normally if you just dropped it. But for some reason, when it hit the floor, it just went like that, but really hard, like a really, like thud, and it didn't bounce. It was almost like it was like magnetic, like it, the floor had sucked it in. And, and I was kind of looking at it for a second. And then I looked at our friends who were sitting, you know, on this side of me and I was like, did you guys just see that? And they're like, and they're looking at me with these big wide eyes. They're like, yeah, I, I just saw that. And I said to his mom, I was like, did you see that? And she's like, yeah. She's like, that just flew right off the table. And then I turned to Tom and I said, did you do that? And he was kind of spaced out and he kind of looked and he was like, oh, I guess I did. <laughs> and that was kind of the first thing. And then, then little things started happening. Um, Doorbell would ring in the middle of the night. Garage door would open by itself. Oh. Um, once we found the door to our back patio wide open and the, um, the deadbolt was still engaged, like it was still sticking out. So, and we never opened that door. So I don't know how that could have happened. And our cat was sitting there staring at it like, what is going on? Why is this door open? But it was just wide open at like eight o'clock in the morning or something. How did you feel? Were they warnings to you, or um, were you I didn't really them? see them that way. Honestly, maybe this is probably this might not be good. But actually, I thought I was kind of excited about it. Excited. I'm like it was creepy, but you know, I was like, wow, I finally got to see it. You know, in a way that that wasn't really that I couldn't really mistake for anything else. I mean, especially that door mm. being open like that. I'm like, there's no way that could have happened with that deadbolt sticking out like that. But yeah, so I, it was creepy, but I, I was actually kind of excited about it. <laughs> are you nervous that these activities are going to escalate to something that's uncontrollable? Um, I'm not sure. I guess it could. That was one thing he said um, when the thing happened with the remote control. Mm. Um, and our one of our friends who was there was like, do it again, Tom, do it again. And... Um, <laughs> And Tom was like, no, he's like, don't, don't encourage it. Cause you know, he's like, it, it could do something bad. He's like, it's, it, it's never done anything to really hurt anyone before, even when he was 13. And when, you know, when the activity was a lot more prominent, um, but he's like, you know, I don't want to tempt it, you know, tempt fate and see if it actually did something to hurt someone or break stuff or, you know, whatever. So. He, he seems to kind of have a handle on it, I guess. I hope. What do, what do his aunt and uncle think, looking back um, all those years? Yeah, they are actually still, I mean, when I talk to them on the phone, they are still really, really freaked out about it. And for a long time, I, 
I think that they initially thought it was a ghost. And I, I think it's taken them a long time to come to terms with the fact that it was Tom doing it. And I'm not really sure if they, if they are still fully on board with that idea. We should explain I, that, actually, uh, when, we, when you say Tom doing it. Could you explain what you mean by that? Yeah. Um, honestly, I think that it is uh, he's causing the physical manifestations unconsciously. Um, because even even when it's happened, even when it happens now at our house now, it's not anything he can't control it. He doesn't mean to do it. It's just he he gets annoyed or he gets angry or something like that, and something flies off a shelf or you know a statue falls off of something. And um, so I think when he was thirteen, he didn't realize that it was him doing it at first because honestly, that is what made the um, the phenomena stop back at Mammoth Mountain was he realized that he was the one doing it. Like, um, the phenomena was a lot more intense when he thought it was an outside force because he thought it was a ghost at first, too. But, um, you know, kind of near the end of the phenomena, he said, I initially thought that it was a ghost and it was reading my mind because he said, I realized that I knew what was going to move next. Like I said, that vase mm -hmm. that's going to move or that, you know, that bottle... And then he realized, he's like, what if it's not reading my mind? What if it's me doing it? And then he tried, he said, well, I'm going to try and do it consciously if it's me doing it. But then it wouldn't do it when he, when he consciously figured out that it was him. It's kind of like a dreamlike state, you know, where we dream and they're, they're very, very real dreams, except Tom's able to manifest um, the dream, if you will into the physical world? Yeah, and actually it's funny you should say that because um, he kind of thinks that he's like, it's, he's like, it's almost like an out-of-body experience, mm. but only of the right hemisphere of your brain, like the, the creative dream-like. Yeah. yeah, he said because, you know, the things that the poltergeist would do are very kind of like childlike things or dreamlike sort of things. And he actually had an out-of-body experience many years later when he was in the army. And so he kind of relates those two things. He said, I think, you know, that time my whole consciousness came out. But he said during the poltergeist thing, I think it was just a half of my brain kind of coming out and doing it without me being aware of, you know, without the left hemisphere being aware of what the right hemisphere was doing. When you were going through puberty, do you remember experiencing anything along those lines at all? Yeah, I really, I don't. That's, you know, and it's either. funny because my parents divorced about the same, I was about the same age as he was when his parents divorced. And so, you know, I was going through a lot of stress and stuff too at that age, 13 or 14 years old. But I don't really remember anything like that. And it's kind of, it's kind of weird because the house that I grew up in, um, you know, during a lot of my childhood, my grandfather's house, um, all of my, my mom and all her siblings had grown up there. And they insisted that it was haunted. They said, you know, our covers got pulled off in the middle of the night. We heard footsteps walking around on the roof. And, and I lived there for many years, and I never heard anything. Like, it was always creepy in there. It was a creepy house. But I never saw anything, and I never heard anything. And, you know, so I was always kind of, I, that's why I was so happy, like, to see the, the paranormal phenomena recently that Tom's been doing, because I was just, 
I was just so jazzed that I finally got to see it. Got to when I was younger. <laughs> much braver than I would be. <laughs> Has any any poltergeist activity or any paranormal activity ever happened around you when Tom's not been present? Mm, no. Thank goodness. Yeah. Because <laughs> <laughs> then there's a reason for it, right? Yeah. He's all, yeah. yeah he's, it's always when he's in the house. Sometimes it happens when I'm not in the house. It's just, uh, you know, like a couple times it was just him and his mom or some other people or whatever. But, but yeah. It's, Has it he's, ever happened when he was in the Army? Uh, he just had the out-of-body experience in the Army. Okay. And he also had a near-death experience because he had a, a motorcycle accident that put him into a coma. Oh man! Yeah, that was uh in the that was in the nineties. I believe it's like mid nineties, nineteen ninety four. I think the motorcycle accident was. It was right before he was going to get out. <clears throat> Is he still in the service now, or has he? No, out? he got that. That actually um, ended his military career because he had such a bad head injury. Ah. But I mean, you know, he's better now, obviously. But because okay. uh, it was a while back, but it took him so long to recover. You know, he couldn't even really walk straight for six months or something oh, afterward. Man. Yeah. Yeah, it's a tough go. Yeah. Thank him for his service for me. Sure. When the book, since the book has come out, has <laughs> there been a rash of emails or letters saying, you know, the same thing happened to me? Not so much. I'm surprised um, at that answer. Yeah, I I am kind of. It's it's funny because Tom is he's fascinated by other people's poltergeist cases also. So he will contact other people that he sees on TV or you know that he hears on podcasts and will ask them about their case and you know they'll compare notes and stuff like that. That's actually how I ended up writing the Rochdale poltergeist book because of one of the contacts that he made. That's a pretty good segue. Let me just tell people who uh, we're speaking with. We're speaking with Jenny Ashford tonight, folks. She's got a couple of books out that I would urge you to get because they are creepy. And this is the time of year for that. One is called The Rochdale Poltergeist. The other one that we've just been discussing is The Mammoth Mountain Poltergeist. Both you can get through www.nightfrightshow.com's website, www.nightfrightshow.com's website. Just click on tonight's book covers, and there's a whole bunch more you're going to see there for fiction books as well, and that'll take you right to a spot where you can order them from the comfort of your own home. And don't forget, she also has a blog called Goddess of Hellfire, and uh, on there she writes short stories, articles, and uh, she reviews horror films and, and books. Best horror film you've seen this year, by the way? I wanted to ask you. Oh, my gosh. Um, Put you on the spot. Yeah. I was like, have I seen it this Did year? Did you see Did The you... Witch? No. Oh, okay. I, it's bad. I haven't, like, I'm, I'm really kind of a fan of older horror movies. Which one? And so I don't see a lot of new ones. I've been watching some newer ones, like, on Hulu that came out, like, you know, last year or the year before. I saw a really good one called Soulmate. It was a British ghost story. Yeah, like British It's kind of slow, but I, I kind of like that. Me too. Yeah, I was, yeah, no I was CGI into it. And I'm yeah. there. When they start yeah, using CGI, yeah. they lose me. Yeah, yeah Anyways, me too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's jump in to the Rochdale Poltergeist. How did this come about? And I want you to tell some creepy, creepy stories about this amazing book you've got. Okay. Um, well, like I said, you know, Tom had been um, doing some research on poltergeist and he came across a British parapsychologist named Steve Mara. And um, 
who is in Manchester. And he has been a parapsychologist for 30 years and uh, researching a lot of cases. And so Tom started talking to him on Facebook and sent him a copy of Mammoth Mountain. And Steve really liked it, and he wrote a review of it for his magazine. And the more that they talked about the Mammoth Mountain case, Steve said, well, you know, you know, I have a handful of like really good cases that I would love to have written up. He's like, but I, you know, I don't really have time and I'm not that great a writer. So, you know, so would Jenny do it because he likes the Mammoth Mountain poltergeist so much. Mm -hmm. So I was like, sure, I, you know, I can do that. So, so that's how that came about. And we just started interviewing him over Skype from, you know, from Manchester and uh, put the book together from there. He must give you a whole bunch of information and it's how to tell that story and make it logical without deviating from the truth or the fact. So I'm just wondering how you how you do that in your writing. Um, basically, I try to, I mean, with both books, I tried to, I wanted to make them readable and creepy, but I didn't really want to embellish anything or, yeah. you know, make things into a plot that wasn't there. I just basically wanted to say what happened, what they told me what happened, and, you know, just try to put it together in the most interesting way I could. And with Steve Mara's book, Rochdale Poltergeist, I basically went through hours and hours of the interviews, and I kind of wanted, wanted it from his perspective, how he felt about it, what he saw. So I didn't really write about the case, because the case had been going on for um, 18 months, I think, before Steve came to investigate it. And I mentioned some of that in the book, but I really wanted it from his perspective, everything that he saw when he got there, because, you know, he saw a lot of stuff. And uh, it was a really weird case, and it was really rare. Like, a lot of the manifestations were really rare for poltergeist cases. Can you tell the folks who Steve is, and then I want to get into some of those really rare poltergeist poltergeist activities okay um like i said he has uh he works for um a place a place called map it in the uk and it actually started out just investigating ufo cases in the uk but then um i think in the 90s they branched out into a you know broader paranormal scheme so he's actually been doing it for more than 30 years and he investigates uh government buildings corporations hire him if something weird is going on in one of their buildings and he, the thing I like about him is he's very skeptical he's very thorough in his investigation he doesn't do you know the kind of ghost hunter thing you see on TV where it's just like oh you know let's the little monitor thing and there's shadows everywhere I mean he's very scientific he writes everything down um, and he's very quick to to say when something he when he doesn't think something is legitimate so and he also has a tv program coming up called the phenomena project which is going to be like a paranormal investigation program but from a more scientific perspective what are some of the things that he brought to the table that he felt were the real deal and you say he comes to it from a, a vantage point of being a skeptic what mm -hmm. are some of the things that he brought forward that he felt were part of the real story that couldn't be explained well, this case in particular, um, the rarest thing, like, and you mentioned it in the intro, was that it typically rained inside these people's house. And, 
And this was the main manifestation of this activity. And it was the reason that they had complained to the council because all of their furniture was getting ruined. You know, everything was wet. They had to cover everything with plastic because, you know, rain would just come down from the ceiling just at random times. And it wasn't just like a little bit, it was a lot. And um, so that so that was actually what alerted the council and that was what uh, it ran in the local paper. And Steve Mayer happened to see it and he's like, oh, that's weird. And he called the council up and said, do you want us to come investigate that? Hmm. And, you know, because sometimes people fake because they want to move and they want to be moved to a different council house and things like that. So he said, if you want me to go and debunk it or see if there's something really going on. So the council hired him and his team to go debunk it. And um, so he got there and he did an investigation over several days. He stayed a, he stayed a whole day, he stayed a whole night. What? He sent the family away so he could be in the house when none of them were there to make sure that none of them were pulling anything. And um, he saw rain coming down in the kitchen in large amounts. He said it was like a regular, he's like, it wasn't just some little drizzle. He's like, it was a rain shower coming out. And he said, and some of the drops went up also. Oh. Yeah. Oh, not good. And one of the, one of the weirdest things he saw that I thought was he said we were all, him and his team were all walking down the hallway and they saw water come out of the ceiling and it started snaking across the ceiling like fast. And he said, and it, and it went around a light fixture as though it was intelligent and it knew that the light fixture was there and went around it. And he said, it just kind of went across the ceiling just like that. And then he said, and then after that, it just dried up. It just dried up and was going like in a second. Yeah. What did he think was an explanation for it? The obviously no rational explanation. Did he? Yeah. He said it was one of the most amazing things he's ever seen. And actually the weird thing about it was that they got a sample of the water from the ceiling, you know, put it in a sample thing. And then they got a sample from the bathroom tap as a control and they sent it to um, a water analysis lab over there in Manchester. And the results were that the ceiling water had an unbelievable amount of electrical charge, like something that they never see. It had, I can't remember, I can't remember now what the measurement units they, they were, but it's a, you know, the measure of electrical charge in the water from going through the copper pipes. And they said that, you know, the tap water was totally normal. So they're like, obviously that wasn't tap water on the ceiling because the, they said the electrical charge was just like off the charts. It was really, really high. Was there any burning sensation or anything when it fell on him? No, he said it felt, that was the weird thing. He said it felt like regular water hmm. because he did have a couple drops fall on him and, you know, and the family obviously had been putting up with it for a long time, but they said it just felt like regular rain. So the house itself, I'm understanding, if I'm not mistaken, it's secluded, is it not? Somewhat secluded? Um, the the house that the gardeners lived in, it was actually just on a little street, like a little cul-de-sac with maybe eight or nine other houses. It's okay. very small. The houses were very small. They were built right. after World War II. Yeah. They were only like less than a thousand square feet, I think. Yeah, it was for the vets. Yeah. Yeah, small yeah, small little bungalows. Yeah. Okay. So it's not that old a house. Any idea what the history 
of the land is or the history of this particular house? They really couldn't find anything unusual. Um, they did research that and they said that, you know, none of the other houses in the area had, you know, reported anything like that. And as far as they knew, there was nothing unusual about the land either. Um, they actually think in that case, he actually thinks in that case that the, that the phenomena was caused by uh, the couple's daughter, who was actually 34 years old, but she had um, a, some kind of mental disability. Okay. So she was, you know, she had the mind of a much younger, uh, like a younger child, like maybe an 11 or 12 year old. So, um, and she was going through a lot of, uh, of stress. She had had a child that had been taken away and um, things like that. So they think maybe that she was the one causing it because the gardeners had lived there for 14 or 15 years and had never experienced anything before this just suddenly started happening. When things of that nature take place what's the best direction for a besides leaving the house what is the best thing a family can do to resolve the situation yeah um in that case they actually did have to leave the house um ah. they didn't want to but uh, in the end you know vera gardner you know the woman at the center of it she said, you know, I've lived here years and years. And he's like, my, you know, I have memories of her husband who had died and in the house and all this other stuff. And she's like, and I don't want to leave. But she's like, you know, we can't stay here. It's not going to stop. And you just it touched on like something. You said the husband had died in the house? Yeah. She was remarried, but her first husband had died in the house. Yeah. Perhaps. I know, you know, it, it's already been um, defined as a poltergeist activity, but perhaps the water because the 34 four-year-old wasn't around do you think maybe that's some kind of communication from the dead husband she seemed to think so she seemed to think it she was um yeah. steve mara did not because you know he points out that poltergeists you know often mimic hauntings oh, but vera did think that her husband at first that her husband was haunting her because sometimes she um smelled tobacco smoke um she heard a man coughing she heard a man's footsteps you know that she that she thought was him and sometimes oh and once um they heard a message over a radio uh, that sounded like a radio from a taxi and she said oh my you know my dead husband was a taxi driver holy moly so you know so there were some aspects of the case that did come across like a haunting and she certainly believed it was. She might still, you know, if she's, I'm not actually sure if she's still alive, but, but I think she thought it was haunting the whole time. Disembodied sounds, disembodied voices. Can you tell us what they said? Um, actually, the voice from the radio, oh, I can't remember what it said, and it was really creepy, too. Paraphrase? It said, John's watching. Oh, isn't that special? And that was... <laughs> And that was the dead husband's name, John. But the paranormal team did not know that at the time. They, this was when the paranormal team were all there and the family was not there. They had sent the family to stay with someone else. And then they, the five of them were in the house. And they heard this radio come on. And it wasn't plugged in and it didn't have batteries in it. It was in the daughter's room. And it came on and they distinctly heard a radio come on and it said, John's watching. When Steve takes on a case like this, 
and he he gathers all the information and he makes a report i presume mm-hmm. is there any way to resolve the uh, the end findings so it doesn't continue besides moving out of their house it's tough um, i guess is it yeah it is kind of he said in a lot of cases they do actually have to relocate uh the mm-hmm. family what they did in the gardener's case they relocated them and then he said what we like to do if we have to relocate the family is we like to uh, what they call fallow the property they're like we like to close it up for as long as possible so no one goes in no one goes out they turn off the power you know they turn off the water they turn off all the services to it and leave it empty for as long as possible because they said sometimes or usually that will make the activity stop so by the time you know a new person moves in usually nothing else is going on and they and actually in the case of the gardener house what they ended up doing after the gardeners moved out uh the council allowed them to follow the property for almost a year is that nice? uh, yeah they turned off the electric they turned off the water um they didn't let anyone in they locked it all up and uh and then they let new tenants move in about a year later and steve mara went back and apparently nothing was going on there isn't that strange yeah. Yeah. But he well, said they like to do that with properties that, you know, apparently something about depriving it of energy. You know, find somewhere else to go. Stuff. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting what you said about the water circling the light and I always think of the electricity and then you mentioned electricity in the water itself yeah. as a source of energy that perhaps it's sucking electrical energy in order to maintain itself in order to sustain itself. I'm not sure. How do you tell the difference between what would be classified, I guess, a demon haunting a house as opposed to a regular ordinary poltergeist? <laughs> Sounds strange to say, Reg- good old, yeah, just a good old fashioned poltergeist. <laughs> Somebody else not paying rent living in the house. Yeah. yeah. Well, I guess uh, the main distinction is poltergeist is usually person based, it's usually based around a person, usually a teenager. Haunting is location based, and it stays there no matter who lives there. You know, it's it's always there. People see manifestations. Poltergeist tends to be short-lived. Um, you know, like in Tom's case, I think it was maybe a couple of weeks. Uh, the Gardner case was probably about two years. It's rare that they're that long. I mean, two years is a very long time. I guess but it disperses like once they grow up, once a person grows up, right? Yeah, it's yeah. almost kind of like a psychic emotional outburst. Okay. You know, which which is why there's often so many, you know, objects being thrown around and broken mm-hmm. and, and things of that nature. But, uh, you know, uh, it's that's the biggest distinction that he makes. Hauntings, he's like, hauntings tend to last a long time. They stay in one place. They don't follow people around. They don't, you know, a lot of people see them, like, over over time. Poltergeist is a lot different to that. Now, I'm, I'm looking for a segue to discuss your latest book, which isn't available yet, and I'm just wondering if we could discuss it, just even on the peripheral. Uh, House of Fire and Whispers, investigating right. the Seattle Demon House. Yeah. Now, this is a whole new level. Yeah, that's uh, that's the working title. I think that's probably what I'm going to call it. But this is a case that Steve Mara is working on right now. And um, it deals with a man named Keith Linder. He has a house in Bothell, Washington. And he's lived in it for mm, 10 years, or the house was built 10 years ago, rather. And he has been experiencing 
basically all kinds of weird things. Um, Bibles catching on fire, um, you know, words appearing on walls. He's hearing noises, voices. And he's actually, I've talked to him on, uh, on Facebook, and he's fascinated. I mean, it's been going on for years. Um, and he's fascinated by all this. And he set up cameras all over his house to catch things. And he has, like, a whole YouTube channel um, where he posts all these, like, eight-hour videos where he just, like, lets the video play, like, in his hallway and, and stuff like that. So you can hear, like, knocking sounds. Has he caused anything on tape? Um, a few things Ooh. he has, and um, and actually, the weirdest thing is that when Steve Mara went to investigate, mm-hmm. um, he stayed there for six days, and then recently he just went back for another eight days, and they did a whole investigation. They set cameras everywhere. They had recorders going the whole time, and uh, and everything. And they said the the most profound thing they picked up was they picked up a lot of EVPs. And then he said, actually, a lot of them were AVPs, meaning you, you could hear them at the time, you know, where you didn't, like, have to replay the... He's like, we heard voices all the time. Oh, and, um, yeah, and they were very clear. Like, I've, he's played some of them for me that they got. And Can you give me an example of what some of them said? Get it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> See that? I hear that, baby. Oh, I'm gone. I'm going to order coffee yeah. for whoever said it. If the pizza's on its way, too. Here's one of the weird things. Um, when Steve uh, Steve was with a, a guy named Don who goes with him uh, on a lot of his investigations, and Don had gone underneath the house because they like to, you know, do from the bottom of the house to the top of the house, all of the attic and everything. So he had gone underneath the house, and he was kind of crawling around in the you know, that's, again, space. It's not horror movie 101, but 102, where, you you know, you don't split up, and you don't crawl yeah. around the houses. Anyways, go ahead. sorry to interrupt you. So Don is crawling around, like, in the crawl space under the house, and they all distinctly heard a man's voice with an Irish accent, oddly enough, say, it's a long house, as though he could see him, like, Clay, and he's like, yeah, it's a long house, isn't it? And he said, and a lot of the EVPs had to do with what they were doing, like, they would say something about the type of camera that they were using, um... Or things like that. He said the weird thing is a lot of them had Irish accents, which they were, they're still trying to figure out. But uh, history, it's only ten years old. You said this house. Usually, the house is only ten years old. Yeah. Now here's the odd thing, though. Now this neighborhood um, had been. It was mostly just like a forest land, and they had cleared it ten years ago, um, and put about sixty houses on it. Um, the spot where Keith's house is was the only spot in the whole forest that had had a previous dwelling on it. Oh, my. In the, in the 1940s, I believe it was 1930s or 1940s, there was an old cabin, like an old log cabin there, basically exactly where Keith's house is now. And that's the only house in that neighborhood that had a dwelling on it before. So they're not really sure if that has any significance you know, to why all these bizarre things are happening at this poor guy's house. <laughs> and I'm wondering if the foundation of that house is still there. Sometimes energy gets stuck in foundations. Yeah, it could very well be. But it's it's just an odd coincidence that that was, that was the only piece of land that it had a house on it before. Okay, you're writing a demon book now. How do you approach that differently 
that you approached the Poltergeist books. It sounds like this is another level up, a little bit more serious. Sort of. Honestly, um, this case is kind of interesting. I don't, I don't think it's demons. The reason that I wanted to give it that subtitle okay. is because that is the name that it became known as. Um, it was featured on an episode of Ghost Adventures, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. they kind of gave it that name. And Steve Mara's kind of like, Meh, you know, I kind of am uncomfortable with that they gave it that name because he's like, I don't think it's demons, but, but he's like, you know, we should probably put that in the title somewhere just so people know that it's the same case that we're talking about. But the weird thing about this case is that it almost seems like it's a combination of a haunt, like a classic haunting and a classic poltergeist, because you're getting like all these voices that are interacting with the environment that seem to be commenting on what's going on. And it's kind of like a haunting. And like I said, a lot of them are Irish accents. And he did find mm -hmm. out that there were a lot of Irish settlers in that area. And, uh, you know, that they fought with Native Americans. There were a lot of war skirmishes and that kind of thing, you know, going on in that area. He said, but then also it has like a lot of aspects of poltergeist too, you know, things being thrown around and, you know, weird writing appearing on the walls and, it's not even writing. It's just kind of this weird scribble, hmm. just all these weird scribbling. He's, it's not doing that so much anymore. The, the activity is kind of ramped down some, but it's still going on now and it's ongoing. So Steve Mara is back there and doing a second investigation and we're going to find out what he found out. And, yeah, I'm and, excited. I'm excited. Yeah. Now. Does he yeah. do any cleansings or anything like that? Some people say splash vinegar, and you know they have all these concoctions. Yeah, Keith actually did have. Uh, he did have some people come in, and because you know, like I said, he wasn't sure what was going on, so he kind of called all the psychics he knew and all the people he knew, and like he had priests come and uh, you know bless the house and everything like that, and nothing really seemed to do anything. He said uh, once the priest came, he said it kind of settled down a little bit, but it's still going on all the time. So he was able to get a priest to actually come and take him seriously. That's pretty yeah. Impressive. Well, the priest was actually, I think, uh, the father of a coworker of his. I see. So I see. you know, for a favor, he said, you know, hey, come over and bless the house. There's all this weird stuff going on. So, uh, so he had him come over and do that. And the priest actually seemed. Steve Mayer actually interviewed the priest that uh, that went over there, and he seemed like a. He seemed like a nice man, and he seemed to believe, you know, that all of this stuff was going on. There's something there to it. Protection. Has he ever been attacked? Have you ever been attacked? Have you ever had um, reason to cause yourself um, to think that you might want to stop this? No. I, I don't know. And people have told me that maybe that's unwise, but I guess because, like I said, because I'm such a skeptic still... And because since, you know, the, the poltergeist phenomena I've seen is related to somebody I know. Um, would you go would to the you, house, the quote-unquote demon Seattle house? Yes. You would? Would you yes. stay over there? Yeah. By yourself? For a million bucks? Yeah. You know, you see those things on Fifth. For a million bucks, would you stay here for a million? <laughs> yeah, I, I definitely would. I definitely would. Really? Yeah. Wow. Oh, yeah, I, I I would love that. I I really would. It's like it scares me, but in a way, I'm you this know. This is the place where the Bible lost. caught on fire, right? Yeah. Yeah. Actually, okay. it was several Bibles actually. Really? Three of, I think it was three of them, at different times. How do you explain that? Any ideas? What's what's in your head to explain that? 
if it's not evil. That I'm really not sure. And and the weird thing about it is that I'm Steve, uh, uh, you know, has examined the Bibles, and he said, and it's not like a burn, like somebody took a match to it. Okay. He said it's almost like a burn, like someone you know put an iron on it or something. You know what I mean? Hmm. Yeah. He's like, so it's really odd, and he's like, and nothing around the book was burned. The weird thing was that it was just, just kind text. of it was burned on the shelf, like when it was closed and the shelf didn't burn the wall didn't burn it was just the pages inside and they kind of curled up and went dark did they could they smell the burning is that what, what caused it or to to be alert to the bible actually burning um that i'm actually not what actually happened i think keith kind of collects bibles and he has a bunch of them on his shelf and I one see. day he noticed that one of them was missing and it was gone for a little while like a couple of weeks and then a couple of weeks later, it turned up back in the spot where it was. So he pulled it out, and then he noticed that it was burned, like all the pages were burned. Oh, this but is getting creepier gone. and creepier, Jenny. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this is going to be a great book. When it yeah. when is it due to be released? It'll probably be. I'm still working on it. It'll probably be. I'm thinking probably about three months. Hopefully, I can get it out. Just before the fall. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Good timing. That's Jenny, what I'm shooting timing. for. <laughs> <laughs> when you write, when you draw upon words to describe what you're writing, um, do you try to keep the words visual? Do you try to evoke emotions more? I basically try to, I try to put the reader there. Good. So Good. I kind of try to picture it in my own head like a movie and then describe it as if I'm watching a movie. Because I really want other people to see it in their head the way I see it in my head. Um, now, Steve Merritt told me that I had done a very good job of getting across how he felt during, you know, his, during his investigation of the Rochdale case. So hopefully, I'm glad I did a good job, but he said I did a good job doing that, you know, kind of getting across his feelings about the whole thing. So maybe it's a little bit of both. Well, you're <laughs> damn braver than I am, because I don't think I would go down and stay by myself in a house that has all those stories <laughs> attached to it, especially the burning Bibles. Oh, my God. Hello. That was a scary. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to bring down, you know, a little cross or something. and Yeah. Yeah, yeah. it's not going to happen. <laughs> Personal stories. Okay. What was your first paranormal experience? Um, that was pretty much it. The... The remote control flying off the table. That was the first that thing was I was first saw. one. Okay. A lot of people one. say, oh, I was thinking of somebody and there was a phone call and there was that person. Yeah. I always call that a paranormal experience. Yeah. I, well, I guess in that case, I mean, you know, me and Tom kind of read each other's minds all the time. So it's, it's sort of like that. I'll, I'll be thinking something random and he'll be like, hey, weren't you just thinking about that? And I'm like, how the hell did you know that? But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's because you're coming in tune with each other. You'll yeah. The same thing yeah. At the same thought at the same time. Yeah. Um, places on the earth you've gone and the hair, the back of your hair has stood up. There's another paranormal experience. This is going to sound really weird, but the only time I've ever had that happen, mm. I grew up in Daytona beach, Florida. And there was a big store there, um, like one of those discount stores. I think it was a Big Lots. I don't know if you guys have those up there. But it's kind of like a cheaper Walmart, yeah. sort of. Got you. And I went in there to get some some Tupperware or something. I don't remember what I was getting. And for some reason, I had the worst 
most creepy feeling when I was, and I had never had that before. In, in the middle of a big lots, I was like looking for Tupperware. And that was the only time I've ever felt like I got to get out of here. It wow. felt like it was just oppressive and, you know, it just made all my hair stand up. And I was like, I got to go. I'm going somewhere else. <laughs> that's the only time that's ever happened to me. You ever scare yourself writing? You Sometimes. Got to, you got to put it down and come back to it? Sometimes. Can you give us but an example? But that's good. I like when that happens. Yeah, absolutely. Like, oh, when I'm being effective, that's good. Can you give us an example of when that happened? Oh, my gosh. Um, I think this one story I wrote, it was actually uh, it was actually a fiction story. And I based it on a nightmare I had. Oh, and so I do that a lot, actually, because I don't have a lot of nightmares, which you think I would, but I don't. Um, but when I do have them, they tend to be doozies. Over the so, um, so I usually turn most of them into stories. And uh, I had one once where uh, I was digging someone out of the sand, like their face was like under the sand. And I was like digging at their face, like trying to get them out. And these waves kept crashing down. It was just like the creepiest I don't know, it was just like the creepiest, horrible dream. And like when I was writing the story that I based on it, I just like, I kind of skeeved myself out and I had to like go back to it later. Because <laughs> it just brought the dream back and it kind of spooked me. <clears throat> okay, very good. Um, we're going to have to start to wrap up now. We've been speaking with Jenny Ashford. Um, do you want to leave the, the folks with any? You know, there's lots of people out there suffering. Um, with the same type of afflictions that you've been describing tonight. Yeah. And uh, is there anything calming you can sway them with? Oh my gosh. I don't know. I don't know what I would say. It's it seems like I kind of would say to approach it maybe in a in a spirit of curiosity, maybe that will help it not be so scary because I don't know. I guess that's kind of how I approach it and I don't see it as quite so scary as maybe some people do. So maybe you kind of see it as like an adventure, like a curious adventure. Turn it around so it's not yeah. so scary. It's just yeah, it's hard to make it kind of more positive thing. Like this is a neat thing I could figure out. Like that's Instead of like a scary thing that's like attacking you, you know. Yeah. I hope that helps. <laughs> I don't know if it did. Yeah, I think it does. Stay in touch, <laughs> will you? Sure. Okay, keep me abreast of all your new uh, your new activities. And if you do go to that house, boy, we got to get you on the show and talk about that. Okay. <laughs> all right. <laughs> We've been speaking with Jenny Ashford tonight, folks. We'll be talking about three books, actually. Uh, it was only supposed to be two, but we've got three books that we were talking about tonight. All she's written, The Rochdale Poltergeist, All True Stories, The Mammoth Mountain Poltergeist, and her latest one, which will be released in around three months. So you're listening right now in, in April. So look for a, a fall 2016 release, maybe around September uh, or August. And that book is called House of Fire and Whispers, Investigating the Seattle Demon House with Burning Bibles. Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for that. Thank you so much, Jenny. I'm Brant Holland from Night Fright. We'll see you all next time. Thanks for joining us. Take care, my friend. Your voice.
JFK Assassination, the definitive book by Brendan Holland. From inside the Oval Office to Davy Plaza, first-person witness accounts. Order yours right now. Nightfrightshow.com.